We've come to the 22nd verse in our journey through this great book, Luke chapter 13 and verse 22. Have you ever participated in an invitation-only dinner? Few of us, I'm sure, if any, have probably been invited to a wedding reception, or rather, we have been invited to a wedding reception. We've probably not been invited to a famous person to dine with them in an exclusive way, but we've probably been invited to a wedding reception, an invitation-only feast. And to formalize that event, you might even find a little card with your name at a table at that reception, and you are invited there given this special invitation to sit down at table and to, div- and to dine with those who have been called. Last summer, our family was invited to uh, a wedding reception at Stillwater, and uh, one side of the reception hall was lined by a sidewalk so that the pedestrians are strolling outside of the room as you are dining on a bountiful feast inside. Now, not one of those pedestrians came in off the street and joined the buffet line. It didn't happen. But I think if it had happened, someone there, an attendant at this fancy dinner, would have said very quickly, listen, this is not a restaurant. This is an invitation-only wedding reception. Uh, Please understand this and have gently dismissed them out. But if this couple had been somewhat devious and were dressed for a wedding, but we're not invited, but they came inside and said, no, we are guests here. We have been invited, and we should be part of this wedding reception. There'd be a lot of ways of solving that, but one simple way might have been to just ask the bride and the groom to come and to ask them, do you know this couple? Have you ever met them? And if the bride and groom can say, I have no idea who these people are, have never seen them before, it's pretty good indication you weren't invited to this wedding reception. A great invitation-only feast serves as one of the enduring images of the coming kingdom of God. We have a little sense of that in our culture, but the Jews particularly fancied that image On one hand, the kingdom of God would be a grand celebration. It would be a time of feasting and of joyous fellowship. And on the other hand, the kingdom of God would be an invitation-only feast. It was an exclusive celebration. You had to be invited. The vast majority of Jews in Jesus' day, we need to understand, believed that virtually every Israelite would participate in this great feast. The rabbis got together and talked through the issue and said, you know, there's probably a few people who will not be invited, a few unique kinds of sinners, and they wrote on this and talked about this. But it was the predominant view that the vast majority of Israelites would participate in the kingdom of God and join in this great celebration of God's people with Messiah. That was the predominant view in that day. And you know, I believe that is the predominant view in our day as well. Surveys indicate that people who believe in an afterlife believe that most people will end up in heaven. By one means or another, many will be saved. There is a broad road that leads to life, and many find it in the end. 
Well, there was someone who was listening to Jesus teach and thought that Jesus might not be on the page on this matter and came up with a question and said, Jesus, will there be a lot of people who enter the kingdom of God? Will many people be saved or will it be just a few? It is this question that initiates in this passage before us Jesus' teaching about a narrow door and an empty house. In verse 22, we read that Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Weigh in, Jesus. What's the percentage of people who will be saved from God's wrath in the end? He said to them, verse 23, at the end, verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Now, in his characteristic manner, Jesus really doesn't answer the question, does he? He doesn't answer it directly, anyway. His response elevates the discussion beyond the mere parameters of this initial question. The question was academic. How many people do you think? Some of the rabbis think this many people, and others are saying this. Some see a little bit more exclusivity. Others say virtually everyone, and some give these various sins. In fact, an Epicurean cannot get into the kingdom of God. What do you think, Jesus? How many are going to get in? Academic. Jesus turns the focus to spiritual responsibility. In a roundabout way, Jesus does answer the question by saying that the door into the kingdom banquet of salvation is a narrow one which will, which will omit many. But the real issue here is not how many will be saved. The real question is whether or not you will be among them. That's where our focus needs to go. Make every effort to enter the banquet, Jesus says. Now we need to stop here and put this with other revelation and other things that Jesus taught. He's not saying make every effort, that is be a very good person and maybe you'll be invited in, as if salvation is by works alone. That, of course, conflicts with Scripture. I think the issue here is rather Jesus is discussing one's attitude toward the narrow door. You need to make every effort, even agonize, to enter this narrow door. That is to focus your attention on Christ alone. As we read earlier, as Pastor Pratt read from Acts chapter 4 and John chapter 14, Christ alone is the door to God. He alone is the way to the Father so make every effort to enter that narrow door. Not so much a matter, again, of works to get yourself in, but of focus on Jesus Christ alone. Focus there, because He is the door of the sheep. He will let you in to the feast. Make every effort. But not only is this effort necessary because the door is narrow, but because it is about to close. Verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. This is a serious warning against procrastination. 
the context again as we've been working our way through the book of Luke is the nation's unwillingness to embrace Jesus as Messiah. Remember the imagery that he has used. He said that this fig tree is about to be uprooted and cut down. The door is coming shut and Jesus reminds the Israelites here the door will close. It's a narrow door and it's about to close. You need to move. Now we need to think here, there's a lot that we could consider by way of application, but Jesus really uses some pointed imagery here, does he not? I started with the illustration of a wedding feast, which means something to us in our culture, but it doesn't mean anything like it meant to the Jews. For them to celebrate and to rejoice at a wedding feast was was a very significant part of their soul as a nation. And to think of the kingdom feast, this was the ultimate celebration. It was to be a place of joyful fellowship. The kingdom feast was a place where there was a warm glow on the inside of the banquet hall and you wanted a place at the table to be brought in. It was a place where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would be seated. And you would come in the great heritage of the people of God and you would join in on this feast. Jesus works very carefully with the imagery when he says, think about being outside the door, having it closed. You're out in the cold and you're pleading, and you're knocking, standing outside, Sir, open the door for us. Listen to these hard, hard words. I don't know you or where you come from. Exclusion from the kingdom. Hard words. Pointed imagery. Verse 26, then you will say in response, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. In the ancient world, to eat and drink with someone was a sign of fellowship. So these people appeal to their great familiarity with Jesus as reason for their inclusion in the kingdom. But Jesus sees it differently, verse 27. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evil doers. Familiarity with Jesus does not render one righteous. You are not saved because you pray. You are not saved because you read your Bible. You are not saved because you attend this church or another church with regularity. The bottom line here, according to Christ's teaching, is are you an evil doer? And he connects that theme directly to entering this narrow door. They seek access to the kingdom banquet by saying that they know Jesus, but their actions indicate that they are unknown by him. They lack the righteousness of God, and the result is utter misery. Verse 28, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself thrown out. The imagery is almost unbearable. 
You're on the outside looking in. Here's the great cosmic event of all time, and you're not in. You're outside in the cold. God gives us in his providence and in the way that he's created this world little glimpses and pictures of this to help us see. And we could go on and create a very long list here, but just think of that day. Perhaps it happened to you, or perhaps it strikes a chord in your heart of that young ball player who's given his absolute all and effort to make the team. And cut day comes. And there's a sign on the coach's door with those that made the cut and those that didn't. And you walk up to that sign and your name's not there. Or that young girl who longs to be a certain part in the play. And she gives her all to make this play. But she's informed that she's been passed up. Someone else was chosen for that part. There's a romantic interest that someone has, and there's nothing evil in the desire, just a, just a longing to be with this person and a, an infatuation with them, and they choose someone else and go to the big event without you. Now, these things we live with. They're part of life. They're part of growing up. But there's something more to these kinds of experiences in life. These experiences give us a little sense of what it's like to be on the outside, to not make the cut, to not get in to the event that we really want to be part of. Jesus is not pulling any strings here. He's not laying back and being gentle on people. He is drawing very graphic imagery, and he's saying, you roll all of those things up together and the hurt of the heart and all of that, and you've only begun to understand what it will be like to stand outside the banquet hall of the kingdom of God. They lack the righteousness of God, and they are cut out. The great patriarchs of Israel, eating and drinking and feasting, and they're outside. It's a horrifying thought. And making it even more excruciating, verse 29, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places in the feast in the kingdom of God. Only the few who have a proper relationship of submission to Jesus will be included. Let's just say that was not the predominant view in Israel at the time. It's a bold, exclusive claim. And even more radical from a Jewish perspective is Jesus' insistence that Gentiles will find their way in the feast. This is Old Testament imagery, north, east, south, west. When that is used, it's referring to Gentiles coming and finding inclusion in the worship of Yahweh. There will be Gentiles who will come and who will join this feast and be part of it, and you, the people of God, Israel, will be cut out. Can you imagine the horror of a Jew thinking of a Gentile eating with Abraham and this self-righteous Jew not making the banquet? It's beyond imagination. 
The thought is horrifying. And the only solution, says Jesus, is this. Make every effort to enter the narrow door. You must, or you will be cut out. In fact, he says, verse 30, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. Not everyone who is first will be last. Abraham will be there, for instance. But many expectations will be turned upside down. People who think they will be first in line and guests of honor and will not be permitted to enter. They will not be permitted to enter. And people who thought they were last will enter in. So make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Respond to Jesus the Messiah the issue, and hear me on this, and hear Jesus on this, the issue is not that you know Him as teacher. The issue is that you cling to Him as Savior. There is, I think, a danger in coming to a church such as ours. We are committed as an assembly, as you know, to teaching and preaching the Word of God. We, as an adult course here today, saturated ourselves in theology in this first hour and our classes did the same as we learn the Word of God and as you come to the preaching of God's Word we work verse by verse through passages of Scripture tying together the themes and the text do you know that's very dangerous it's very dangerous because one could be led to believe that because we know about Jesus that we know him because we know about Jesus, He knows us. And that is not necessarily the case. Praise God for a group of people, as I do routinely, who long to hear God's Word and to learn it. But let's never forget, there's a difference between learning God's Word and knowing Christ. Hopefully they go together. But there's a difference. It's dangerous to be taught God's Word in one respect. It's more dangerous not to, let me hasten to say. But it can be dangerous to be taught God's Word. The issue is not do you know about Him, but does He know you? There is a need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You need that personal saving relationship. Have you entered the narrow door of salvation through Christ crucified and risen? We are, of course, on this side of the cross. And so we bring in that understanding and that knowledge that we must trust in His death and trust in His resurrection. Have you come to a saving, personal relationship with Him through that gospel? A narrow door. But Jesus moves then at verse 31, or the account does, to an empty house. He first fields this question in verse 23, and now there's another contact made with him as he is moving about teaching and uh, ministering, performing miracles. At verse 31, we note that at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Herod Antipas. He'd make a good movie someday, though, I don't know, maybe it'd be too... It wouldn't be probably too good to watch, but he was one wicked man. Herod Antipas is the one who murdered John the Baptist. Just read the pathos in there, the emotion on Jesus' part. That's his cousin, 
That's the forerunner of the Messiah. This man, Herod Antipas, had John the Baptist beheaded because a young dancer pleased him. He is the ruler of Galilee to the north. And knowing what we do about the Pharisees, it's pretty difficult for us to assume that they're concerned about Jesus' welfare. They may be trying to intimidate him or perhaps even to flush him out of Galilee into Judea where the Sanhedrin is more powerful, where the Jews may have a better shot at getting to Jesus. We don't know all of the details, but Herod wants to kill you. These are some of the harshest words Jesus ever spoke. He does not deal with this man lightly. But he says, verse 32, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. To call someone a fox, let me say, was not a compliment. There were three ways in which this was used figuratively. We use it one of those ways. We tend to use somebody as, as sly as a fox or cunning as a fox. They used it that way as well. But they also used it to refer to a worthless person, and they also used it to, to refer to someone who was a destroyer. Foxes were destructive to property, particularly to crops. And so to call someone a fox was to call someone who was destructive so you can take your pick, but Jesus is not complimenting Herod. This is the man who has beheaded his cousin. And Jesus is filled with righteous anger, and he makes it very clear that he's not going to run from a fox. When he says today and tomorrow and the third day, that might be taken literally, but Jesus is probably so far into Galilee at this point that to get to Jerusalem three days is really not the point. But rather, this was a figure of speech that the Jews used, and basically it meant, in the normal sequence of events, I will leave Galilee. He's going to leave when he's ready to leave and not before. He's going to go at his own pace and he's going to follow his own schedule. Send this message to Herod. He's not going to intimidate me out of anywhere. Jesus elaborates verse 33 and he says, in any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. Again, probably a figure of speech. I need to be going in a sequence of events for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. I'm not going to die at Herod's hand, for I know that I am sent from God as a prophet. I am headed to Jerusalem because that is where prophets die. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Go back to verse 22. Did you notice what seemed to be just a meaningless directional note there? Is not. Verse 22. Jesus went through towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Go back to chapter 9 and verse 51. If you will recall back sometime as we looked at this passage, you'll remember that this is a major turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 9 and verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Prior to 951, we're dealing with the Galilean ministry of Christ. Now, he's still in Galilee, but at 951, there is that idea of him setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 13, where we are right here, lands in the middle 
of this section dealing with his journey to Jerusalem. So it is at the pinnacle and the high point of this whole period from 951 to 1944. And it is here that Jesus again mentions the need to move to Jerusalem where he will die. Crucial statement at this point in the book. And verses 34 and 35, coming at this midway point of his journey to Jerusalem, let us know how this will turn out. Christ has been anxiously warning Israel. Her time of opportunity is short. The fig tree is about to be cut down. The wedding feast door is about to close. Verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jerusalem stands here for the nation. And Jesus knows that the nation has rejected him. His response is not bitter. His response, it seems, is broken. I mentioned, I think, a week or two ago that he weeps over Jerusalem. I don't know that. thought about that. I guess we don't know that he's weeping, but I think he well could be. But certainly there's great passion here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a brokenness. His love for Israel is like the love of a mother hen for her brood. He longs to take Israel under his wing and to protect and to nurture her, but Israel will not come. You take the horror of the image of not being invited into the banquet feast, Jesus suffers his own horror. There is a passionate and infinite love for Israel in his heart. He longs to bring her to himself, and Israel refuses to come. Verse 35, look, he says, your house is left to you desolate. It's an empty house. Israel is an empty house. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's over. The lights are out. The house of Israel is empty, forsaken by God because she has forsaken Christ. From here to the end, the cross is an inevitable result. You will not see me again. Christ does not mean no one will lay physical eyes on him again. Clearly, he's journeying through Galilee. And by the way, for those of you that are thoughtful about these things, I think it's very possible that this is a, another statement rather than the one taken at the end of his life as he sees Jerusalem in view with the last week of his life. I think this is per, very possibly another time when he prays the same prayer, although some would say that it's just put out of order chronologically. For whatever it's worth, we know the sentiment of his heart. And even if this is the prayer at the end of his life, they will see him on the cross. They're going to see him again. The point is, they will not see him for who he is again. Not until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This refers to the end when Israel embraces her Messiah. 
the second coming. They will call him blessed, but you will not see me for who I am until then, not as a nation. The issue now is where each person stands. Who will enter the narrow door of Jesus? Who will continue to simply watch and listen and submit to him and not submit to him? Questions just as real today as they were then. There's so much we can learn from Christ at this place. I will not labor long here, but I think that we learn how Jesus appeals to the lost. And there's something for us to learn here. Jesus, first of all, appeals to the lost with a broken heart. He longs for Israel to come to him. Those who appeal to the lost with a gospel message that is, stick it in your face, how stupid can you be? I am the right and you should turn to me because I have the better logic. Do not have the spirit of Jesus. When he shared the gospel, the plan of salvation with an unbeliever, Jesus shared it with a broken heart. Before him stood a person who might be outside the banquet hall someday pleading to get in. Someone that he longed to bring under his wings like a mother hen and to nurture and to protect and to love. That love should be in our hearts for the lost as we share the gospel of Christ. Let me say secondly, as Jesus calls the lost here, he is not afraid of using graphic language, is he? Now, we need to be very cautious here. But there's a strong appeal, an emotional appeal. Do you want to be on the outside of the banquet looking in? Is that where you want to be? I warn you, that's where you will be. You will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Gentiles dining with them, and you'll be on the outside knocking on the door. And you will be gnashing your teeth in agony that you have not been permitted in. Oh, that's not a cold, calculated... Well, let's figure out here if you're predestined for salvation or not. I believe Jesus believed in predestination. The Bible teaches it. But that's not how he talked to people. He used emotion and he used graphic imagery. It was real to him and it needed to be real to them. And thirdly, as we look at the example of Jesus Christ and witness, we realize that there is no backing away or apologizing that Jesus Christ is the only name by which we must be saved. Don't back down to this world on that point. He is the narrow door to, Christ, to, to, to God and to heaven. Christ is that narrow door. We don't need to apologize for that. That's the truth. And the Bible teaches this over and over again. And Jesus did. Make every effort, he says, to these people in this context to enter the narrow door. In other words, I am the way, no one else, and no other means. And so as we fade out 
from this teaching of Jesus, we must go home today with the thought and with the question. Do you have your dinner reservation? Are you going to be at that great feast when Messiah sits down? There's great hope here, isn't there? There will be a day of great celebration. There will be a day of great hope. There will, it will be a day in which Gentiles from north, east, south, and west are invited in. Do you have your reservation? The evidence of it is not simply that you have a ticket but the evidence of it is how you live, that there's a desire in your heart to love Christ and that there is a focus in your attitude that He alone is your salvation. Are you clinging to Jesus Christ as your Savior? You will not earn this banquet by good works, but you must know that Jesus alone can get you in. And you need to make every effort to focus on Him as your Savior to bring you eternal salvation. If I speak to anyone here today who does not see Jesus as that exclusive way of salvation, I trust that you've thought about that point very carefully and thought about Jesus' imagery that He draws and that you would consider that you need to submit to Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is the way to the Father because He paid the penalty of sin. And He rose from the dead to defeat the death that you will experience because of your sin. He is the way to heaven. And as I speak to those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, may we not lose touch with this exclusive message, but may we rejoice in it and share it and be thrilled in our hearts that God has called us to this banquet. There's a card there with my name on it. I don't deserve to be in there. But Jesus' blood pleads for me. I've been washed of my sins and the Spirit indwells and witnesses with my spirit that I am a child of God. Can you say that with me? Then let's rejoice. Because we are privileged people beyond measure. Let's pray. Our Father, there's just in my heart an overwhelming sense of thanksgiving. We do not deserve to be called your people. We do not deserve to be in your presence. But you have called us here. God, like little chicks, we scurry under your wing. And there it is warm, and there it is inviting, and there 
it is peaceful. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, which provides for our peace. Father, may your people now give thanks. Sanctify our prayers and the sentiments of our heart, our affections, and warm them. And Lord, may we rejoice that we have been called to be your people. Break our hearts. And Lord, fill us then, fill our mouths with the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And may we go about into the highways and byways, and may we look for people who will come to Christ. You must call them. You must save them. But we ask our Father that you will draw them and that our witness might be part of their saving of your saving grace in their lives. Please open our mouths and grant us privilege this week to share the gospel of Christ in some way or form. And may we as your people rejoice together. Draw to yourself anyone who knows you not as Savior, we pray today through the preaching of God's word. And we lay these requests at your feet, giving thanks and rejoicing in who you are. Through Jesus I pray, amen.